When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you hear yeah. me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. It's unlikely that many of you will have heard much about today's guest. Jake Fines lives and works in a remote corner of rural East Anglia. When I looked him up, he came up as director conservation in the great estate at Hokum in Norfolk. Today we're going to talk about songbirds, and if you don't understand why, I don't care. I suppose not so long ago, Jake, you'd have been... Seeing the Earl of Leicester have plenty of game birds to bang away at. Birds for killing versus birds for life. Do you ever find yourself wondering, what's that? I, I, th- I think that actually, you know, birds are birds. Whether you're choosing to harvest them or whether you're choosing to listen to them in the morning as you, as you put your coffee on. And there's a deep, we all have a deep engagement with birds because they're, our easiest way to connect with the natural world. So, um, you know, it might come across as slightly perverse that some like to harvest or some just like to view. Uh, And we all interpret birds in different ways. You know, I have teams of wardens that are obsessive about finding new species that they haven't seen before and ticking lists that start off in the the start of the year looking for rare migrants that might drop on our shores. So I think each to their own on, on, on the bird front. But we have seen dramatic declines in our bird numbers and species abundance in the past 40, 50 years uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, I think the intensification of agriculture has been a significant driver in this. Uh, and we have an opportunity to readdress this. Does it matter? Of course it matters. I, I think the... Why? Because... Birds are the fabric of life. Birds are, you know, the, the, the song of the blackbird in your garden, the, the, the calling of the curlew in the uplands. They, are, they connect us with nature. And if we were to lose them, we would lose something within ourselves. 
What would we lose? Um, we would lose our... We would lose... What would we lose? I would lose the pleasure I look out of my office window that I'm doing currently, seeing murmurations of lapwings uh, and uh, uh, peregrines uh, dropping onto teal. I would miss that. I would uh, have to be... Um, I'd have to put up with four screens on a daily basis for hours on end that give me little or no satisfaction at all at times. The problem is, for the ordinary person, you know, you can't tell one from another, you can't see them for any length of time, and you just get baffled. I'm completely mystified. I don't... I don't that's, that's the allure. The allure of... Actually, you see this fleeting glance of something you don't know, and that draws you to understand what it is. If we look at lockdown that happened a year ago, where we're seeing this wonderful regaining of what is in and around us. When, you, when, you, when your flat is above a tube station in London, uh, you tune out the sound of the tube every three minutes, and you, you become disengaged with it. And it's the same with our wildlife. We all become, we've been so preoccupied with our daily lives of uh, computers and iPads and iPhones and um, where we're going to, you know, get the next crust from that we've tuned out the natural world. So we have, a, an, a, we have an ability to engage with it. And I think more and more of us are doing that, whether in the confines of our flats in, 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 in cities or whether though, even those that live in the countryside have become disengaged with it. Even our land managers have failed to recognise the decline of birds. And actually it's not till they stop and sit and listen and the countryside is still that then they feel they've missed something. I have to live in London now and I find that I get excited when I hear birds in spring and this is the best time of year to hear them because you can hear them and they're making noise and you can see them sometimes because there aren't too many leaves on the trees. You get really excited and then I think, well, what the hell is it? It's just a bird. It's, <laughs> we, prefer, we prefer the sound of sirens and motor cars. No, of course I don't prefer the sound of it, but when I I bought an app for my phone called Chirp, which identifies birdsong, and by the time I press the thing to identify what the sound is and hope I've got it right, it's gone. Uh, so I must confess that my hearing isn't once what it used to be for many reasons. No. And I had this wonderful moment where a previous employer asked me of, of whether I could take a friend of his out because he hadn't heard skylarks for years. So I took this gentleman out into the middle of, a, of an arable landscape and I said, there you go, listen to those skylarks. He said, listen to them, I can't hear them, I'm tone deaf, I haven't heard them for years. So it was nothing to, it was nothing to do with that he hadn't heard them or because they were there, it was because he was deaf. So my, I, I will confess, my ability to recognise and understand birdsong is not as good as it should be. But um, uh, Simon Barnes, the, uh, the writer, used to write for The Times and uh, writes on nature a lot. Um, we did an event uh, a few years ago where we 
trying to get individuals to connect and listen to birdsong. And it was really interesting. I couldn't hear the firecrest that was three foot from my head, but he couldn't hear the song thrush that was 300 meters away that I could. So we all have different pitches that we can hear and understand. And that was, uh, and that's, you know, and the complexity of, uh, the complexity of the reed warbler and the complexity of the nightingale song intrigues us. Um, but actually even the calling of a crow or the calling of a raven can be, uh, can be mesmerizing. You'll be talking about how wonderful magpies are next. Well, each their own. I think, you know, I think magpies have their place. Predation is a natural part of nature. Uh, the, some species are more abundant than others. Um, and we need, interesting, I'm going through a process with Natural England trying to uh, apply for a gull license because we have uh, multiple, we have multiple species of uh, rare waders on the nature reserve here. Um, uh, and their numbers have seen significant decline and certain species are preventing their ability to replicate themselves. So we, uh, we go through this because there was an organization called Wild Justice that decided to uh, challenge the way the general license allowed us to control certain species. Uh, and through that process, Natural England uh, then passed over the responsibility to the then Secretary of State, Michael Gove, who uh, looked at the legal mechanism for allowing the general license to take place. The general license allows us to clean out our bird boxes as well as uh, control magpies, crows, uh, and numerous other species. Uh, parakeets in London is another species that's under the general license. So um, we now have to go through processes uh, for some of the species that have been removed to allow us to get individual licenses to control them. And Natural England have come back to me and said, uh, please can you provide evidence that you've recorded this taking place? The frustration is all this evidence historically has been anecdotal. And now we're being asked to record and witness and uh, capture data on where we're seeing species uh, being detrimental to another. The interesting thing is, is the gull species that are having an effect on the avocets, red shank and uh, lapwing are actually an amber listed species themselves. So how do, when do we, when do we as, a, as humanity realize that we want to take control of the situation and control some species for the benefit of others when those species in turn are seeing the declines themselves. It's a, the conundrum we live in. in this. How do you make these judgments? Well, we're now, so historically, the gamekeeper or the warden or the individual would make the judgment themselves. And now we're being asked that we have to, you know, one thing we're very, especially those within in rural, um, in rural landscapes, we've been very bad at capturing the data of what's going on. Yes, we know that the crows can have an impact on uh, bird nests. We know that the magpie can have an impact on songbirds. And actually, so we've had this process, this legal process that's allowed us to control them. And now we've been challenged on that. So we, what we have to do in turn is then provide data, but also science. And we have to counteract some of the science that says we should not be controlling these to giving sufficient, robust evidence to allow us to do it. 
But if you look at something like a sparrowhawk, sparrowhawks are, of course, predating upon songbirds. Why is that? Why, why should we take the sign of the songbird? Uh, I think, well, this is where attitudes are changing. So we historically have taken the side of the songbird because we all love to see them. The goldfinches feeding on the, on the, on the thistles, you know, gives us pleasure. There was a time when we used to capture the goldfinches and put them in our kitchens in aviaries because it gave us pleasure in turn. So how the, this evolution of our relationship with birds, but now, now we're, now we're being, um, now we're being challenged on just indiscriminately removing birds for the landscape. So we have to come back with robust evidence to counteract those that believe this the wrong approach. We have to satisfy another bureaucracy. Sparrowhawks are beautiful birds. Uh, and sparrowhawks are stunning birds. Uh, the, and another a species that has also seen decline. So why should we prioritise one species above another? The, the reason we do this is because the, the natural balance is out of kilter. Because of our effect on how we choose to manage our landscapes has had an impact. So if we look at the intensification of agriculture, the way we choose to manage our hedges has seen the abundance of our songbirds decline. The sparrowhawk has been highlighted as a species that was also instrumental in that, but actually we're now looking at the science and the science is telling us it's the habitat that is key rather than the individual species. What sort of birds have you got a lot of there? We've got a lot of everything. We do, we do, we do birds big style. So uh, we've just uh, we're coming out of the period of overwintering birds, where we've had uh, pink-footed geese in their tens of thousands. We've had uh, this year we had the highest ever recording of lap overwintering lapwing, uh, in excess of seventeen thousand birds were recorded. Uh, waders, wildfowl. Uh, Predators, you know, sparrowhawks, marsh harriers, buzzards, red kites. We have, a, we have a balance because the habitat is right. The habitat is right for all to have a chance. You should never have an abundance of sparrowhawks because they're an apex predator. But you should have an abundance of prey for the sparrowhawk to feed off. Would you um, be very, very disappointed if the grey leg partridge, for example, disappeared altogether? I would be, uh, it would be a travesty for a species, an iconic species of our arable landscape to disappear. And interestingly, a friend of mine, I, I'm very lucky, lucky to be invited to shoot wild grey partridges in France. The French don't like them. Uh, we, some people call them English partridge and the French get very upset because they should be perdix perdix. Um, anyway, so I... I, I um, well, they don't like that, so that's Per de Rouge. <laughs> um, but interesting, so, so the grey partridge, which uh, historically was abundant in our landscapes, and Holcomb has a long history of uh, having large harvestable surfaces of grey partridge, and we've seen the decline, but we can change that, and there are, there are great examples. Uh, the Duke of Norfolk in Sus Sussex, has had a wonderful example of a recovery of the grey partridge on his estate in, in uh, at Arundel. Um, 
but climate change is going to be the next impact because my French farmer friend have said where the summers are getting hotter, the, the English partridge or the grey partridge is a temperate bird. And when, when it's becoming hotter, the eggs are becoming less fertile. So temperatures over 20 degrees in the incubation period, or sorry, daily temperatures of over 10, 20 degrees in the incubation period can cause up to 50% or, or more to become infertile because it's not used, that's how that specific species has evolved. So suddenly it's not just that we put all the habitat right, but then the climate is changing, and that's having an effect. But where there are opportunities, um, so with climate change, if we create habitats to allow species to migrate, we can have new species in our landscape. We can't necessarily expect to have species that we remembered as children. Because already in the time I've been at Holcomb, we've seen cattle egret, the, the bird you associate on the African plains or the... Or the is that the white egret? Uh, well, it's, it, it, it is a white egret and we have many different egrets. So you have the cattle egret, which is the one which sits on the backs of wildebeest um, with, a, with an orange beak. You have the little egret that has a black beak and tends to sit and skulk around in muddy pools. You have the great white egret, which is a magnificent tall uh, uh, bird that um, looks similar to a heron, but is, is white and great by the nature of its name. The other thing is the names of birds. It does what it says on the tin. It explains us. So how do we identify the bird? We know the robin redbreast has a redbreast. So... Um, and then, uh, so, uh, so there are multiple sorts of egrets. And strangely, uh, within the heron family, uh, you have the crakes and the uh, uh, spotted crakes and bayless crake, which are all species that we're now starting to see move into our lands in the English landscape because the climate is changing and the birds are, are moving accordingly. Holcomb has, the, Holcomb has the largest breeding population of spoonbill in, in the country a bird that was extinct for hundreds of years. It's just swings and roundabouts then, isn't it? It's evolution. It's evolution, and, so, and we should embrace it and enjoy it. So we should embrace climate change? <laughs> there are parts of climate change I think we can embrace. There are parts that we, you know, we can uh, wear shorts for longer through the year. We then, but then we have to, if, if we're going to wear shorts in February, then we have to put up with uh, floods, floods in December and January. Uh, and then we have sea level rise uh, and, all, and Holcomb will be impacted with a, with a half a metre to one and a half metre sea level rise. Holcomb, that will impact Holcomb significantly. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Tell me about Hokum. I've been, um, is it Hokum or Holcom? It's Holcom if you live here. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Um... I've only been there once, and I went to the beach. It was fantastic. Everyone, everyone goes to the beach. It was absolutely fantastic, until the moment when there was an invasion of ladybirds, and we were covered in them from head to toe. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. Maybe that was... Were they the, the classic ladybirds, or were they the, the, the black ones? Well, no, they weren't black ones. They were they, they, but I don't know how many spots they had. Well, you got the twenty-two spotted and the twelve spotted and the six spotted and the two spotted. But let's just keep it at ladybirds. Otherwise, we'll get deeply confused. Um, so Holcomb Beach is stunning. So seven miles of uh, pristine sand, um, uh, sitting alongside uh, a pine woods planted two hundred years ago. Uh, cushioned by 2,000 acres of freshwater grazing marsh that is an abundance that is a haven of, of wildlife. So it is, but I had a meeting with the, with the Secretary of State, uh, Mike, uh, Michael Gove, um, uh, 18 months ago, two years ago, and I sat in this huge boardroom in, in, in Westminster uh, and my name plaque was in front of me and I sat opposite him and the first thing he did was wag his finger at me saying, you're from the beach, aren't you? You're from the beach. And Holcomb's 25,000 acres is so much more than a beach. There's so much more going on. You know, this wonderful flower meadow that sits behind me on my screensaver is a stunning part of Holcomb and we need to tell people more about the, the wonderful attributes Holcomb has beyond its beach. So what? You're lucky to live. You're you're lucky to be employed by a toff living in a very very gentlemanly way. Um, I I will not I will I will not dispute. I'm not lucky, but I I think I've uh, I've worked for that with thirty years experience in land management and uh, uh, a reputation for delivering and making a difference. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, the landed gentry are part of the, the British fabric that we've grown up with. We have a, we have a, a monarchy uh, and we have the cascade of, uh, that runs down through that, you know, from the dukes to the earls to the 
lords and the ladies. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I am deeply privileged. I, 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 uh, I gave an interview last week and uh, I think I have the best job in Norfolk and I have a very good employer too. Would it make any difference if you were just trying to produce a lot of pheasants and partridges for him to shoot and his friends? Um, I've, so my past, I've, uh, in my career path, I started off as a gamekeeper. So I have provided uh, quantities of, of uh, non-native game birds for, for individuals to remove from the sky for their pleasure. I, and I do believe sometimes you've participated in that. I have. I used to shoot. Yes, I did. I did, and and I don't. I don't mind it at all. But I do think that it's uh, it's somewhat rich to hear a lot of people like you banging on about songbirds and how precious they are. When the other, you know, not so long ago, you were just banging away at all things in the sky. Um, I think that was might have been our forefathers rather than, you know, don't tar me with the same brush as my great grandfather, who who or, or even my grandfather who uh, was a brigadier in the Raj, and uh, was some dignitary from 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 Blighty came was came out to India, um, and they had drugged a tiger for her to shoot, and he was un, was unaware of this, and then shot it in front of her. So, but don't tar me with that brush. <laughs> and 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 our 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 values and our positions change over time. So I think that the uh, the challenges of those that participate in the shooting of game are being challenged daily. And even last week, the lead the the, the voluntary lead ban that hasn't has had no traction. The number of released game birds into our landscape. We're being told that 60 million game birds are released into, non-native game birds are released into our landscapes and the impacts they're having. Um, and I think we're, we're all sitting back reviewing what we're doing. We've seen this huge escalation in game bird release. Um, and, but we also are aware of the associated benefits because where people are releasing game, they're invariably getting involved in uh, stewardship schemes to enhance the countryside that have benefits beyond the birds that they're shooting. So I think I think uh, you know, and we need to you know whether it's the culling of uh, crows and magpies or the shooting of foxes, we just need to be conscious that we're trying to have an environment that is beneficial to all and not just plundered by ourselves. The problem is, isn't it, it's, it's about the nature of the judgment and the quality of the judgment. Always. that, and We always do it as if we are the master species. We do. We're the, you endlessly hear we are the apex predator. We sit on top of the tree and we command as we see fit. But I think, I think attitudes are changing. You know, I think the... Uh, the importance of Curlew, today was announced the, a, a new Curlew partnership, which is a, a range of organisations, the Game and Wildlife Trust, but also the RSPB and DEFRA, employing Mary Caldwell as the new um, chair of the, the Curlew partnership, also being supported by um, the Duchy of Cornwall. Uh, and this shows a collaboration 
looking at a species that has had significant declines, declines to the point of potential extinction in our landscape. And all of these organisations coming together to try and resurrect this, this uh, travesty. So that's a good thing, is it? It's got to be a good thing, you know. You know, we're, why? Why? Because wh why should we manage our landscapes uh, and take total disregard of species that disappear? For the same reason that we don't care about moles or rats or mice. It all comes from Genesis originally, doesn't it? But I think. But I think so. Moles. Uh, rats and mice, we, we, we can sometimes cause the problem of the mats, rats and mice. If we put out excessive amounts of grain, we then are feeding more rats and mice than we are the birds we're intending to feed. So we need to, be, uh, we need to understand how we create some of our own problems. You know, the decline of songbirds could be attributed to the intensification of agriculture probably from closely after the war, and specifically in the changeover of growing winter cereals from spring cereals, in 1963 was probably the last great heyday of the grey partridge, where it disappeared nearly overnight because we changed the way we managed our landscapes. And that was for a reason, wasn't it? It was to feed people. There was a food policy... It was a food policy to feed people, but to feed people with cheaper and cheaper food. And this is part of the problem. Do you think farmers are adequate custodians of the countryside? I think they can be. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think I see, some, I, I see some great examples of wonderful farmers that are good custodians of the countryside but also providers of food for our tables. But I, in turn, I see farmers that have been molded into um, uh, food producers that take total disregard for our landscape through no fault of their own. Farmers have already be, always been a political pawn. And now we're seeing the change with, with the with the transition period from direct support, where you received money for owning land or occupying land, now DEFRA is suggesting that we will pay you to deliver a service through public goods. So I think that's a good thing. And I would love to think that in 20 years' time, I can walk, drive, sit on a train and look at the English countryside, and it's very different than it is today. Because people have paid their taxes in order that you can enjoy that view? They, but they, in turn, see the view. So it's not, it's not exclusively my view. No, but people have a right to choose, don't they? And Yes, they do. And do, do you think they would... Uh, we know that when, when people sit outside supermarkets asking people, are they going to buy the rare breed organic um, uh, uh, free-range pork sausages, they go, yes. And as soon as they walk into the supermarket, they go for the cheapest, cheapest sausages they can buy. So until we can change those attitudes of the consumer, and that's not necessarily done by the consumer themselves, because everything is done by 
government policy. Everything is done by business initiative. If we look at this, the drive for everyone to be carbon neutral, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2040, 2030, 2050. That's not a choice we, the, the minions of society, make. But those are choices made by others. And we, uh, they're made by governments, but they're also made by uh, they're made by institutions and they're made by business and commerce. So, so we look at we look, um, everyone. Microsoft, uh, you know, the, Microsoft is trying to backdate its carbon for twenty years, and by doing that, they will improve the way we produce our food. They will improve our because we know when carbon is captured. Uh, Sufficiently, it's because it's in a dynamic, um, uh, alive landscape, and and that in turn is better for us. So we 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 don't make those decisions, but I think the landscapes will be enjoyed by everyone. Everyone, you know, whether or even knowing that the landscape is being cared for, because if we don't look after it, fundamentally it will be our demise, because it's the natural world that effectively sustains us. We'll just all carry on living in muck, won't we? I will speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm not living in muck. No, of course you're not. You're living among beautiful wildflower meadows. I can see behind you. Um, but are we living in muck? I, 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 I think most... We live among we, mountainous quantities of litter and suburb, the spread of suburbia. This seems to me to be very, very unpleasant. But people have people have got to live somewhere, and they've got to they've got to eat somewhere, and you know it's all right for you going and buying the most expensive sausages, but everyone else has to care about these things. I didn't say I bought the most expensive sausages. I have budgets too. Um, I, I actually to prefer most of my if my most of my wheat can be uh, foraged wild protein would be my preference. But not everyone can do that. What would you What would you forage? Venison, wild venison, the most the, the, the healthy, good meat, and we have an abundance of it. Munjak, the munjak, the scourge of England at the moment, but delicious to eat. I agree, they are, they are delicious to eat, and I've also shot them. But you know, try doing that in London. Um, well, well, I don't know how what the Munjak, London Munjak population is like at the moment. Well, I think you'd find the Metropolitan Police Firearms Squad would have something to say about it. Um, so, so how do we get um, the change in society where, and this goes back hundreds of years, where we moved as rural occupiers and we moved to the city, we moved to the bright lights. I did it myself. I used to work in London to my detriment you know and uh, because it didn't it didn't sit well with me and I um, although although I was drawn to the high life and um, and all of that so all of society globally has done that we've all become uh, urban populations and so we expect others to look after our landscapes and feed us accordingly and if we can do that in a manner that's good for birds, bees and butterflies, all the better. Do you have a sense of the, what the national bird of England ought to be? 
Oh, I, I, it's, well, that's a that's a big one because uh, you know we look at the the bird the bird the bird that is the emblem of the, our uh, Royal Society for Protection of Birds is actually an avocet. But actually, then the the bird that is on the crest of Lord Leicester's family family crest is actually an ostrich. <laughs> so, um, so I I think for me something that would be iconic and strangely it probably would be the skylark because it's rather dull to look at. You can invariably never you never see it but always hear it. Exactly, but uh, to be unable to hear it, it must be awful. Yes, yeah. So then we replicate that with the calling the chattering of a magpie. I tell you what, I've learned one really useful thing in this interview. You don't have to have a special license to kill parakeets. You can go and murder them whenever you like, can you? you under the general license, you can. Uh, I think this would be particularly difficult uh, in, in London, although I do know the. Gen <laughs> I do know the gentleman that is. Uh, given the responsibility to control the parakeets at Kew Gardens. Well, he's not doing a very good job. If you look at some of the photographs on his phone, you'd think he was. <laughs> he was. <laughs> so, so the reason they're on the general licence is for disease rather than causing, having a detrimental effect on other species. Non-native species should be allowed to be culled. So some would say that white storks are non-native. Should we be culling those as they're being introduced in quite large numbers? Well, they're introducing themselves, aren't they? So they are native. Well, no, they've been, they've been introduced. And currently we're having an example where someone wants to reintroduce white-tailed eagles to, in Norfolk. And there's this, there's, this very, there's this fashion in the releasing of, of species, whether it be polecats or lynx or white-tailed eagles. When actually, uh, some of those species we, we should have in our landscape, like the curlew, are disappearing. Shouldn't we concentrate on those first? We see that we have lots of curlews in the, in the winter, but nothing breeds at Holcombe. But I'm, uh, I will, before I'm done here, I will have breeding curlew at Holcombe. You've ha you'll have eaten curlew, did you say? They used to. Curlew used to be on the quarry list. It was only in 1986 they were removed. What? <laughs> <laughs> Next time you have a, a, a curlew for supper, invite me up. I'll look forward to it. No, Jeremy, what we'll do is we'll have a ten-bird roast, stuffing one in the other. Oh, yeah, I've heard about those. But I don't understand uh, what you do with the bones. No, you just take the breasts off, and then you pile one breast on top of the other. You're not actually stuffing one bird into the cavity of what, another. So you don't start off with the with the grey lag goose and then finish off with a skylark. Okay, right. Well, you're on. I look forward to that. And a pint of pint of Adams. <laughs> Adams, what a great beer that is. I had a very sweet postcard from your um, your employer a few months ago, appealing for donations to songbird survival. You, you donated generously, so I'm led to believe. But the, the interesting, so the songbird survival, do you know the history of that? No. It used to be a sort of, it was a, um, a pigeon fancier's club that were disappointed that the 
peregrines and the sparrowhawks were taking all of their pigeons. Oh, really? So they were quite a militant bunch. And then, um, and then that evolved into songbird survival. And it was, uh, if you look at the trustee list, there was lots of titled individuals saying that we've got to shoot all the sparrowhawks because they're killing all our songbirds. And then they realised that that approach wasn't possibly the right way. So the current songbird survival is the, uh, it's all about science, using science to challenge others on the way we manage our landscapes and the way we look at individual species. So, and I think that's a much, much more informed approach than just telling everyone we need to get our guns out and shoot sparrows. Jake, what's your feeling about the nightingale? Why is it so special? Because of when it sings or how it sings or what? No, because it sang in Berkeley Square, of course. <laughs> so then, so when in your Knightsbridge, in your Knightsbridge flat, you know, it used to sing there, now it doesn't. Think of how much scrub there would have been in Berkeley Square to house a nightingale. Um, but I think it's because the, the, it's the, it's the, the song that is so, it's all over the shop. It's a chaotic song and it's very complex. And I think that's the attraction. Interestingly, my brother had a film come out the other day called The Dig. Oh, yes. And, um, uh, there's a moment there with the nightingale singing. It's the most, it's the crappiest nightingale song I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then there was this moment of this wonderful Suffolk estuaries where he's sitting on the bank and there, there, there's a, a skein of geese fly past. But the, the recording is the recording of seagulls. <laughs> Doubtless you pointed this out to him. I, I did point, after I congratulated him on his accent, I, I did point out that some of the guys in the, um, in the editing suite need to get their bird song correct. Yeah. Brothers, eh? Brothers, then you just love them. God, life would be done without them, though, wouldn't it? No, I've got three of them. Yeah, I've got two brothers and a sister, so... Did you have any sisters? I have two sisters. So, yeah. And, and a foster brother. That's brilliant. Reflects well on your parents, too. Well, I think it might have... Their demise, as both of them died quite young. <laughs> highly recommend don't try and bring up seven children, especially when you have six under seven. Christ, six under seven. How many have you got? I've got two. One of each. That was enough. I've replicated myself. I've done my bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the human problem, isn't it? The human entitlement. Interestingly, I read something uh, this weekend where they think we're all going to be, humanity's going to be infertile in the next hundred years. <laughs> and that will be our demise. Not before time. No. But no one likes to talk about it. No. It's the, the elephant in the room. The Chinese, the Chinese, I think, have sort of seemed to have edged back off their one-child rule. We don't hear about that so much. 
So I was in China about three years ago, and it is amazing the number of people you see at airports with several children. Of course, it's not a representative sample because it's only the privileged who can fly. But but it is quite staggering. I was really surprised. Is there popular? Then we then we get Japan, where their population is decreasing because they all stopped having sex. Well, it is overrated. <laughs> it all depends on your experience, I think. <laughs> I once had a friend who said, he said, the thing about women is they don't really like sex, at least not in my experience. <laughs> we all fell about. Possibly a reflection on your performance then. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Jake, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Pleasure. Well, there you are, Jake Fiennes, a man who knows his wagtails from his warblers and from a family of chronic overachievers. Next week, we've got another serious overachiever, the producer, writer, comedian, showrunner and director Armando Iannucci. Should be one to savour. Until then, make the most of the sunshine. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.